ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell, your host, and sitting across from me, Greg Dutcher. Hello, Nathan, and hello, everybody listening in. It's just the two of us tonight. We haven't done one of these for a while, yeah. but looking forward to it. Yeah, nice, uh, as as we like to say, fireside chat. It is a fireside chat, brother. And the middle the, of Baltimore in the middle of the summer. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seems something more February-like, doesn't it? But, That's right. Yeah, uh, and it's a late hour for us, dude. It is, yeah. We're uh, rolling up on 10.30 here. Um, and uh, Greg, you were at the sports game, and that's uh, one of the reasons why we're running so late. Yes, that's me, dude. I'm going to be at the Orioles twice this week. I'm happy to report. Uh, it'll be old news by this point, but it is Monday, uh, July 27th, and I left the game a little early mm-hmm. to get here because I knew we needed to get rolling. And as I was just checking in, Matt Weeders, who I've been criticizing, hit a home run in the bottom of the 11th against the Atlanta Braves, and we won 2-1. to one. Nice. So it's pretty good. Very good. And actually, um, Greg, one of the things that we're going to talk about, it's, all, it's always great when you and I talk because it's, it, it really does uh, promote what our tag is, ADAD yeah. conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, ADD conversation. Did I just say ADAD? Yeah, AD, ADAD. That's a new <laughs> thing. That's attention deficit, attention deficit That's disorder. right. So. We have it twice. Yes. yes. Um, but, you know, when you and I get together, we just we, – we flow so well into different conversations and topics. Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to talk about tonight was uh, sports and yeah. fandom. Um, and so, Greg, kind of walk me through this idea because – there are areas where I, I lose my cool, I lose my temper. Traffic. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that there are a lot of people out there that can relate to that and, yeah. and understand where I'm going with that. Even my wife, who, uh, when I drive the car and I get frustrated, if she's behind the wheel, yeah. she will get equally frustrated with uh, the traffic that's going on. Yeah, I wish I could relate to you, dude. <laughs> Never. Totally don't understand no, that no. one. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, but, but, for me, realistically, sports, I, I really don't have the the vested interest in the passion in in sports. Investing in a team, my my big sport that I love and enjoy is soccer. Yeah. Um, and when people always ask me, well, what team do you root for? I, I really don't. I just I can sit down and I can watch a soccer game. It doesn't matter when it's playing, who's playing, and just enjoy the game itself. That's nice. There's no there's no team that I sit there and, and support and roll through, um, and and then kind of subsequently going down the ladder follows all the American sports. Right. Right. Um, and and so for me, I just I don't have this this passion for it. And so, kind of walk me through that your your passion for for sports, yeah. Um, because because it can be a really great thing sure. of com- camaraderie. But I, I'm sure you would admit um, that as I sit in traffic, I I feel like there are days I lose my sanctification. Yes. That, uh, you probably feel that there are days when you're sitting down watching a game at home or even at the ballpark where you can feel it slowly slipping away. And, yes. Uh, so just kind of walk me through that passion and 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 what's going on there. Definitely. Yeah. I uh, think there's a segment of fans mm-hmm. of which I am certainly one. Uh, I talk to a lot of guys here at church about this, so I feel like I've got a large enough group of company. In general, and ladies listening to this, please forgive me if I'm overgeneralizing. I I think most would agree with this. I think that it tends to be a little more of a male issue mm-hmm. 
at least in my marriage, Lisa is a fan. I mean, we have two teams in Baltimore from where we podcast. You know, we don't have uh, we don't have the NBA or NHL, mm-hmm. uh, but we have uh, the Ravens for the NFL, and of course the Orioles for the MLB. And uh, Lisa enjoys both teams. She's been to games with me uh, throughout the years, um, mainly Orioles, but even a few Ravens games she's been to, and uh, enjoys it. Loves when we win, is a little bummed when we lose, but bounces back incredibly quickly. I am a fan who gets very frustrated, and I'm just going to put it out there. Um, I mean, I remember when we lost a big game in, was it 2012, in uh, Foxborough, New England, in mm-hmm. your neck of the woods up there. <laughs> and then a game that we uh, should have won, I think. Um, mm-hmm. That was a game where uh, those that are listening in that might remember uh, Joe Flacco was really great. He uh, threw a bullet to Lee Evans, yep. who was a wide receiver in the end zone within final minute or two of the game. Would have won the game for us. Mm-hmm. That would have put us over the top. Evans drops it yep. or allows it to get stripped from him. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, we got another shot. Uh, we're in field goal range. We got a chip shot. We got a mm-hmm. 32-yard field goal. And uh, uh, Billy Cundiff, uh, who is uh, not very popular in this town anymore, shanked it. Uh, and just hooked it completely, and we lost. We didn't make the Super Bowl that year. And um, I'm going to be honest, Nathan. Here I am, a pastor, uh, committed Christian, and intellectually I knew. I mean, it's nothing. It's a silly game. It's right. a kid's game, really, that millionaires get to uh, have the benefit of playing it. But I was rocked mm-hmm. for, I'd say, three or four days where mm-hmm. I just I didn't want to listen to the radio. I didn't want to turn on TV where I could see anything about it. Certainly didn't want to hear about the Patriots celebrating <laughs> their victory and blah, 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 blah. And I have often thought through years, okay, Lord, what is going on with me? Yeah. Uh, I talk to a lot of guys here that feel the same way. Uh, because he has said it, our friend Scott Perry that was just on, yep. the Orioles podcast that we did with our friend Steve Molesky a few weeks ago, uh, Scott's just like me. Uh, in fact, our mutual friend Al Myers calls us both cliff jumpers mm-hmm. because uh, we are so down and uh, frustrated when the team loses. Um, I don't like that about myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say from my upbringing, my father, um, who is the most mild-mannered man you could meet, except in two places. Mm-hmm. One, you'll like Nathan Traffic, mm-hmm. um, where you know he became a different person. And two, sports. Yeah. So years ago, I never understood it, and I mocked my father. I mean, I would do it teasingly. Right. He has not watched a Ravens or Orioles game live in a lot years mm-hmm. now, years. So he'll watch football, but not the Ravens play live. He'll watch baseball, like the Washington Nationals that you can pick up in our area. Mm-hmm. But he won't watch the Orioles. And normally, he will check in the next day with me or my brother or the paper or the internet and find out who won and sure. why. Because he can't watch it live. Mm-hmm. And I am beginning to wonder if that might be an effective strategy mm-hmm. for some people. I don't know what it is, but I was telling you before um, we went live tonight, Nathan, or recorded since nobody's listening to this live. That's right. <laughs> uh, although we got to do a live cast sometime. I yeah. think I think that would be fun. We can do it. Yeah. I looked it up. So live cast coming. That's right. And we'll have like two people listening into the live cast before That's right. it records. Now, here's, here's the question, Greg. Yeah. Do we have to do it late night? Since these go to 11. Oh, man. I guess we would, dude. Yeah. We would do. Yeah. But not even as late. We could start That's at right. 10. That's right. Yeah, we can do that, dude. All right. Definitely. We, we, can, we can do that and urge people to tune in and have giveaways and all that stuff. That's right. Um, we digress. Yeah, we digress slightly. <laughs> you can tell it's a casual affair here. 
But uh, I mentioned to you, Nathan, um, really on our way here to our little studio. Yeah. Um, I'm going to test out, and I'm wondering what our listeners think. Here's a theology of sports fandom mm-hmm. that I'm going to throw out. I'm thinking this. I start thinking, okay, um, yes, ultimately I can call it idolatry. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talked about my first book several yeah. months ago, that's what the subject was. Yep. Uh, yeah, of course it's idolatry. One of the um, signature phrases I picked up from a seminary prof was, you know what your idols are because whenever they shake, you shake. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm shook up because the Orioles got shook up on right. the diamond tonight or the Ravens, you know, uh, lose the game in the final minutes, uh, then I have attached too much importance. So right. I get that, but I want to take it a step further. Mm-hmm. I think Nathan fandom is the closest experience that I can think of that is similar. It's not an exact parallel to worship. Mm-hmm. And I think about it because when uh, your favorite player hits a home run mm-hmm. or busts into the end zone and just tears off a great uh, run and, and you know breaks through five or six tacklers and you know wins the game in an unexpected way, nobody tells you, hey, you should feel good about that. Yeah. Nobody instructs you how to respond. You naturally respond. Yeah. And I think, I really do, it's because we're wired, hardwired by God, to ultimately rejoice in someone outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ultimately what we would say about God's glory, classic Piper stuff. You mm-hmm. know, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Right. Um, and it's strange to me. It's, it's universal that you find something you root for. Mm-hmm. So for people that aren't sports fans, it could be a, a, a hero and a story. Yep comics or yeah. novel or, or a movie or a TV show. Uh, it could be any number of things. So I think about this, why our loss is so frustrating? Because I really want to get a theological sense. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't rationally make sense. And I'm just throwing this out. Mm-hmm. Is it that God has hardwired us to root and cheer mm-hmm. for a person who never uh, fumbles the ball on the one-yard line, mm-hmm. for a uh, uh, a great hitter who never strikes out in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded. Um, Cause the one that we're hardwired to worship yeah. and cheer for, for lack of a better word, yeah. never fails. Yeah. He never changes. He's always a 1000 hitter. He, he always makes every dunk. Yep. Uh, there's nothing he ever drops yeah. where our earthly right. manifestations of that same uh, principle, they, they fall short. They're, they're short. Yeah. And it's almost like deep down, do we know? No, this isn't supposed to happen. Right. I throw. I've tested it out with a few people. Yeah. I get a mixed review. What do you think? Nate? Yeah. No. I, you know. And again, it's it's difficult for me because I don't have the vested interest and passion. But I, I think you're onto something in general here. And um, I, we mentioned this. Uh, I think it was the last time you talked about your book because we talked about Lewis and Tolkien within that regard. Yeah. One of the arguments, and and you know, I, I bring this up quite frequently with uh, people, and I've brought this up on the podcast before, one of the arguments that um, J.R. Tolkien used when he was talking to C.S. Lewis was if you look at all of the mythologies in history, he believed that that was part of God's common grace Mm -hmm. to cultures and nations, a shadow pointing to the one truth, and that is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we have the Hercules who, who is, you know, this, this man, God person who comes down to earth. He's, he's living among us. He has these labors he has to perform and ultimately he triumphs and, and he's quote unquote ascended. Um, and, and that to Tolkien was, was God's common grace to people an explanation of what Jesus Christ would ultimately be, but in perfect form. Sure. They were obviously these lesser forms. And I think, I think for, for lack of, you know, better analogy, that's what we see with sports people today. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the things that these football players and baseball players, um, basketball players, all these athletes can do. Yes, that we can. That we can. Yeah. You're right. They're almost like these superhuman beings. Oh, yeah. The things that they can do on the court or on the field, whatever their you know chosen sport is. Yeah. And so for us, they are like you said. These are the people that we look up to. We yeah. At times we worship because they are so above us. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Ultimately. They let us down, right? And so our our hope should be to the one above them, yes, who who never lets us down. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Nathan. I uh, as you say that, my mind goes back to uh, uh, 1979 mm-hmm. was my earliest crushing sports memory. I was nine, mm-hmm. and that September, going into October, the Orioles made the World Series, mm-hmm. which uh, they would make again in four years, but. This is a big deal for me. I'm nine years old. I'm I'm locked in. That's as old as almost as old as my son is now, who's my biggest baseball enthusiast, Isaac. And I remember now. The, now real quick side note: yeah. Do you see some of the traits? Oh my goodness! In yes. him now, where yes. he's starting to pick up some of those things. Yes, I'm glad you asked me. I remember last year or two years ago, the uh, Orioles were playing uh, the Yankees, dreaded foe. And same kind of deal. It was like top of the ninth, bottom of the ninth. I can't remember who was home, who was visiting. We had it locked. It seemed like we had it locked. Mm-hmm. We were up by two runs, and it looked like we were shutting it down. And Carlos Beltran came up with like two outs and a full count and hits like a three-run homer. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could just tell Isaac, one, he, he had never really seen that happen mm-hmm. in the short time he had been watching. And it was devastating to him. Mm-hmm. that No, that no, we were winning. We were about to win. And I... I said, I know, buddy. I know it was. It was you know, I feel least, your pain. Yeah, I do. I do, and I'm so glad you asked me that. I see it in him. Well, in '79, same age uh, as my son is uh, now. I was then, and the Orioles were up three games to one in the World Series against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh Pirates had the most hideous uniforms. Sorry, Pittsburgh uh, <laughs> uh, fans. Willie Stargell was on that team. Uh, oh gosh, Parker's a whole bunch of big players. And um, they had these hideous hats. They looked like bumblebees, the uh, the uh, uniforms. We Are Family was their theme song. They play it all the time. <laughs> but we're up three games to one. Sure. Baltimore T-Shirt, uh, T-shirt Company makes a, um, I think it was like a uh, 100,000 T-shirts or something that they had made that said uh, Baltimore Orioles World Series yeah. champions because it was a lot. And I remember asking my dad. He picked me up. I was coming home from school. And driving in the car with him, never forget, he had sports talk on the radio. And I said, Dad, we are going to win, right? And he said, Gregory, it's a lock. Mm-hmm. And when my dad said it was a lock, well, that was for me. I'll add a new uh, dimension. For a nine-year-old, that's kind of the equivalent of biblical revelation. Right. It is gospel truth. My father, the grand interpreter of all of life, 
who tells me what's right and what's said it was a lock. So I've brought that up to him many years now uh, <laughs> because uh, in a shocking turn of events, Pirates went on to win the next three straight games and uh, they won. Yeah. And I was devastated. And I do think, Nathan, that there's something for which we're – your point about these athletes that do what we can't do. The um, I, I'm more of an NFL guy, but a close second is Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love about Major League Baseball is I think the experts are generally agreed that the hardest thing, the hardest single skill to do in any sport is to hit a ball with a baseball yeah. bat. I mean, I was there tonight, Nathan. I mean, and uh, these pitchers, Kevin Gossman's throwing 97 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, I think you have, uh, my friend Mark there told me, three-tenths of a second to make a decision. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and these balls come in at odd angles. They curve. Mm-hmm. They come in off speed. They can change it up. The locations are perfect. And so it's, it's um, we, most of us know, can never do that. Right. Never do that. Right. I mean, sometimes you can strike out in slow pitch softball. Yeah. Uh, as Brian Regan, the comedian, says, <laughs> nothing more humbling than striking out in slow That's pitch right. softball. Remember, he says, you sit on the bench and the guys are like, <laughs> like, hey, don't worry about it, Brian. I mean, he, right. he, he has a wicked 12 foot arc. Um, you know, yeah, we might be able to hit a ball in softball, but I could stand there all day, Nathan. And probably never even put a bat on one of those yeah. balls. So when you see these guys that can do it and then hit it out of the park, there's an amazement you have. Yeah. You see a, a great tennis player. Tennis is one of the sports that looks easy. Yeah. And then you, <laughs> and play, then you it, play it. And you're like, oh, my <laughs> word. How do these people right. do this? Um, there's an admiration. Again, I see a similar connection to worship. Mm-hmm. There's You're cheering for somebody that does on your behalf, because it's right. your team, what you cannot do. Right. So, yeah, I, I do. Uh, we're tracking, dude. Yeah. And I like the Tolkien uh, reference. Gives us too. a little more theological background. Yeah. <laughs> and whenever you drop Tolkien or Lewis, in, right. you have instant credibility. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, where, that you and I would lack otherwise. So, yeah, just, just a little thought for the night for anybody that struggles. Yeah. And, and um, I want to say, Greg, because we want to, um, we actually want to have my father in law on here. He's been in sports ministry for over 30 years. Can't and, wait um, to talk to him. He. He has noticed some crazy trends among Christians Mm. and their fascination, obsession with sports. Um, He told me about uh, one person. Hopefully this person you told me about isn't listening to this, but (laughs) I'm not mentioning any names, so it doesn't matter. Um, He told me about one person who uh, literally whatever is going on, if a good play is made, nothing else can happen. So for instance, if his son just left the room to go get a drink and uh, someone scored a touchdown. His son can't come back in the room to watch the game. Wow. If if his uh, son just stood up and a touchdown was made, his son can't move. He's no. got to stay standing for the rest of the game. No This way. is a believer. This isn't, this isn't someone who is, you wow. know, replacing – well, I mean, in essence, yes, he is replacing God for something, obviously, sure. in this situation. But this is sure. somebody who is – who who understands that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sin, but they're almost superstitious. Yeah, and this is to me, this is becoming a a trend more and more with believers. Yeah, this superstition of oh yeah, we won a game, so I need to do the exact same thing that I did last week when they won. You know, yeah. I mean, he obviously takes it to an extreme, but you almost see that. Yeah, where oh, I was. 
I was in this room at this time watching this. And so this is what's got to happen. And I was so, doing these things in these events. So I was going to ask, it's like a superstition. Yeah. Thing for him. It's almost like, oh yeah, the night the, uh, my team won, I was wearing these, uh, exactly. these brown dress socks. And that's yeah. what, that's what I have to wear. Yeah. Wow. And so yeah. he's, um, yeah. my father-in-law is working on, um, a, a training curriculum, first of all, um, and I'm going to mention it now. Um, it's called the new scoreboard. Mm-hmm. And um, first, it's to inform, uh, re-inform players of the objective of sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but second, it's to train parents yeah. in the objective of sports. Yeah. Um, and his, uh, all three of his children, he, um, he and his wife, my mother-in-law, adopted three children from Ghana. Um, three, four years ago now, um, and all phenomenal athletes, yeah. phenomenal athletes. And his youngest son plays lacrosse and mm. he can, I mean, the joke is he can score on command. Wow. You give him the ball, he can score on command. And my father-in-law is teaching him, look, bud, you're great at scoring. How about you learn how to pass? Yeah. How about you learn how to, you know, do this or do that? You know, don't, don't worry about scoring all the time, you know, and he's trying to train him not to just take advantage of scoring every single time, but to think about his player, you know, think about the other people on his team. You know, if he's got a friend who's in scoring position, he might be closer, but Hey, toss it to your friend and see what you can do. Um, he's very big on, um, you know, if, uh, if a team's ahead, you know, what can we do as the team that is in the lead to, to work other advantages? You know, yeah. can we put some of those weaker players in and train them to be better? Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one because I think that's going to help us and in, in address some of those things that, that, uh, we see in sports. Yeah. And it's, I'm glad Nathan, because sports, sports offer an opportunity. They really do. To examine our hearts, you know, I'm all yeah. about sports and and uh, hobbies. I mean, yep. and my kids play it. I played them. I love to watch them. Yep. Um, and I think that's great. But we have to be extremely thoughtful. Yeah. On the relationship between uh, our hearts. Yeah. Our hopes, sports, wins, losses. Uh, my daughter plays high school volleyball. You know, uh, and uh, boy, as a parent, some of those losses are crushing. Yeah. You know, because it's even harder than a major league loss in some cases. Right, because there's personal connection yes, there. Yes, you're and, so invested. Yeah. And then, of course, immediately, the, what am I modeling? What am yeah. I showing uh, by my reactions? And, uh, yeah, there's – I'm eager. I think that'll be neat. Yeah. That'll be neat. Yeah, and, you know, it, it really is a warning to um, – to us as fans and us as parents too, when we're there shouting things and uh, making comments, whether, I mean, first of all, um, if you're in, if you're in a Christian setting, especially, you know, that high school league, I mean, in a professional stadium, I think there's a little more grace because it's not like an umpire is going to hear you yelling from, you know, 10 rows back with all the noise that's going on. But when you're in a, a, a Christian setting in high school and as a parent, you're yelling things at the ref and these refs, they're not Christians, not no, all of them. Sure. What does that say about the testimony? Yeah, oh my goodness. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're supposed to be all about the grace of God. These refs come and they know that, oh, this is a Christian school. They're supposed to act different and they yeah. see absolutely no difference. Sometimes it's even worse yeah. than when you go to public settings. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I have a friend who is a pastor who I won't name, but he uh, has told me and he's told several groups that he has uh, spoken to that uh, here he's a pastor in a small town 
his kids play, uh, I think it was a basketball game, and he thought the ref was being unfair. Maybe. Maybe the ref was making terrible calls. Mm-hmm. Maybe the ref was biased. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But uh, he lost it. Got ejected from the gym. Oh, wow. A known pastor. Oh, my heart goes yeah. out to him uh, because he got just so caught up in the uh, frustration of the yeah. game, the, the heartbreaking nature of the, the stakes that were on the line. Uh, he came back. Uh, mm-hmm. He asked at the, the end of the game, he asked the ref, could he address the crowd for a quick minute? And uh, he did it very tearfully and said, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ashamed of myself. I uh, let my emotions get the best of me. And you know, I think he did the best that he could right. have with the situation. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he would say, absolutely. Here, he, he, And I do think, Nathan, sports is one of the things that can catch you unaware. Yeah. When I find um, I'm snippier with my kids because the Orioles lost, mm-hmm. there's a problem. Yeah. There's a big problem. Uh, when I might find that I'm even in a uh, in an extra uh, good giving mood, maybe because my team won, there may be a problem. Yeah. That's a little more subtle because nobody's upset when people are happy, right? But in that hard examination sense, I think, man, what what does this mean? Yeah, why would my day be different if they lost? Right. Uh, Lisa always says things like, "Greg um, Adam Jones, who's big Orioles star." He doesn't know you. Right. He doesn't know you exist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why are you investing so much yeah. time about a person that? that and, and I say, oh, Lisa, he does. Yeah. <laughs> he sees me the few times I've been there cheering for him. Well, and what's more, what I find hysterical is uh, the the fans get so rocked and upset yeah. at the other team. Oh yeah. And and how many times do you see the Orioles players chit chatting with the players on the other team while they're just there on first base or yeah. second base? Yes. Yeah. And you know, it's like, yeah, these these are my friends. These are the guys who I play ball with. I, I agree. I think that's telling, Nathan. That's a great point. That when when the players are less upset mm-hmm. that than the fans, I know some fans that get upset that the players are being kind to the other yeah. team. But you're right, it's almost do they have a better sense? This is game, dudes. Yeah. And sometimes you know it is the other team's job. They get paid too. They're right. They're trying to beat you. Right. Sometimes they're going to do it. Right. Because they're good too, and they're professionals. Right. And yeah, these are. I think more conversation should happen because I will say, Nathan, uh, I, I have talked to couples, even in our church, mm-hmm. where it can be a source of frustration between husband and wife. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where you say, "Hey, I got to start thinking right. about this." And I do think whenever you can take it back to the thought of, "Okay, what am I wired for?" Yeah. And some people might have to make hard decisions. Some right. people might. I think my father's had some wisdom mm-hmm. in his life. He just knew, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a fan, yep. but I'm going to be a uh, a, uh, a dollar uh, short and a day late fan. Yeah. I'm always going to check in after the fact so I can follow. But for him, he just determined it wasn't worth the frustration and the yeah. effort. And I think that can be a fine way to handle it. Sure. Um, sure. You know, I mean, we don't always have to say, well, I'm going to keep my eyes open and watch every game and make sure that I don't uh, lose my cool. Sometimes I'm not going to bother with it. Yeah. No. And and again, that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to my father-in-law because I've seen it. Joy and I will be married um, 11 years in August. And even the time that I've known him, he's transitioned so much out of this sports fanatic um, into somebody who, um, really one of the reasons why he follows it is because it's, it's a source of, of conversation in the family with his brothers. Sure. Um, but other than that, he, there are several times where he's, he's just 
said, you know, uh, and this is a Red Sox fan. Yeah. You know, I mean, no offense to Orioles fans, but Yankees fans and Red Sox fans are die hard. Oh man. Yeah. And, and, and he's just like, you know, I, there, there are some seasons where I just wish I could just not watch. Right. You know, and, and just let it go. Yeah. Um, but part of the reason why he holds on to it is, is the conversation piece, but he has come so far wow. in terms of his attitude and, and in seeing this as this is a game, Yeah. you know, and, um, you know, and, and not to not to uh, mock you or anything like no, that specifically, no, Greg. On, but man. like, you know, one of the questions he asks is, if you think about it, like the you know the the shirts and stuff, you're walking around with another dude's name I on know. your back. <laughs> like, yeah, think about that for a second. Yeah, I've got know? a few friends that say the same thing. I um, uh, I never do that. <laughs> I don't have a Ray Lewis jersey or two. Uh, you know, and again, yeah. I think I think those things are you know there, there's nothing in and of themselves wrong with it, right. but you know the the place where it can bring us. So I, I am excited to kind of That'd say awesome. this is a part one, and then you know yeah. maybe a part two when he comes on that more practical. Uh, all right, how how do we begin to move away from this yeah. into um, you know I still I want to be a fan, I want to enjoy the game, but have that realistic mentality of. It is just a game. And yeah. so let's do it to have fun, but let's kind of, you know, leave it there. Yeah, and a quick wrap up on that point, Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, for your father in law, it's a good season not to be into the Red Sox. Um, <laughs> that's all I'll say. It's a, he's he's going to be blessed if he's not watching. Yes. Um, I'll just say that. Yes. And I say that with no glee. None. None at all. <laughs> Zero. I. My heart bleeds uh, for them. Well, I want Big Poppy to succeed. Um, <laughs> like when he smashed our phone in the dugout a couple of years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. I I got a little distracted there, but no. Uh, um, but we're actually going to um, move into the second part of the podcast, uh, Greg. We want to talk about your second book, Living Free in Enemy Territory. I think this is a good transition because really the subject of sports can be taken two ways. One, in idolatry. Yep. Two, um, you know, I think this shows one of the subtle ways because in your book you dispel some of the the quote unquote Hollywood myths of Satan. Right. Let's start there and and then work that transition sure. in. Um, so just uh, go ahead and, and talk to us a little bit about the book, Living Free in Enemy Territory. Yeah, I've written uh, yeah three books, Nathan. They're all pretty short. I think I've told you before. My family keeps me humble because they'll hold all three together and. My daughter and wife will say, wow, you put all these three together, it's almost <laughs> like one regular book. So, you know, they, they, they keep me, me humble there. And um, that book, however, I'd say was my personal favorite, for lack of a better word, yeah. of, uh, of yeah. the three. Uh, it really came out of a, a long time of thinking deeply and wrestling about the subject of who is Satan? Mm-hmm. Why does it matter who he is? And I think it does. And how are we in relationship to him? So I sort of start the book by um, mentioning it was 1984, 85 when my parents got cable TV. Yes. And my brother and I. Um, the downfall of society. Yes. Cable TV. <laughs> cable TV, man. Which, you know, wow, I, I didn't just have the three channels and the whatever, the Fox 45. Uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, y- you know, whatever that channel was called. Um all of a sudden, we have uh, we have an HBO trial, you know, that my parents didn't buy, but we had it uh, free for three or four months. Yeah, um, 
you know, and all, whatever movie channels were on at the time. And uh, my brother and I were big suckers for a while for horror films. Mm-hmm. And I remember staying up really late watching these. And uh, I guess not being a Christian, not having any biblical uh, input in my life at all at that particular time. I mean, my mind was a just blank slate, open canvas for Hollywood to paint whatever picture they would of whatever my view of the devil would be. And uh, I remember the movies like The Exorcist and Amityville Horror and uh, The Omen, you know, those kinds of things. They painted for me who the devil is. Yeah. And uh, my understanding of the devil was he was basically uh, an amalgamation of every horrible um, Freddy, yeah. Jason, Michael Myers character Hollywood had ever come up with. He was the the sort of complete package, raw rolled into one, uh, whose main job, I guess, if you pin me down, was to terrify the heck out of us yep. and to um, you know hide and come out in creepy ways and right. dark places, maybe kill us. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure that he could do that. Some of the movies seem to suggest that he did, but at least make life terrifyingly awful. Yeah. Um, and so that was what I thought the devil was. Now, I think what's interesting is a number of Christians, I I think, have largely accepted that portrait. Mm-hmm. Maybe with a little more Christian overlay. Sure. But as I uh, have looked at the subject of Satan through the years, um, I want to be clear, there is some degree of truth in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably most seen in the passages on uh, possession. Sure. The Gerasene demoniac who's cutting himself and is breaking the chains that have bound him and that sort of thing. So I don't want to go so far... Uh, which would be easy to do for me, as to say there's no truth. But I definitely don't think it's his main yeah. portrait. Uh, I think the the Satan we see in Scripture is a very different one mm-hmm. than um, has been painted for us by Hollywood. And I think Christians hurt themselves yeah. um, and their view of God, their view of their own faith, and their standing with God to the degree that they accept that faulty view. Yeah, yeah. No, and... Uh, I got to tell you, you said this was one of your favorite books. It was actually one of mine too. I when I taught several years ago, I used this. Yes, and you came in and uh, you got to speak to my students about it and answer questions, um, which was so appreciated. And one of the reasons why I used this book was because I got so many questions from my students. Yeah, and it was the same thing. Their ideas were formed from these Hollywood conjectures of what Satan was. And so there were all these questions that they were asking, um, you know, can he do this? Can he do that? You know, and I, I almost hesitate sometimes to answer what Satan can do right. because to an extent, I don't really think we know the full extent of what he can do, Sure, but I think we get some, some glimpses of what he can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you talk about that so great in your book and actually Greg, the, the book, uh, if I'm correct, was a compilation of a sermon series you did called Satan I Defy Thee. Yeah, pretty much. That's right. Um, and th- that's actually around the time Joy and I started coming was yeah. during that series. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm actually I'm going to read this um, a little bit later, but you use um, this uh, hymn 
from Johann Frank. Yes. Um, and, and again, I'll read that later, which has that phrasing, Satan, I defy thee. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that you bring up is looking at and refocusing on what Satan's primary goal in mission is, and yeah. that is to blind the eyes of the unbeliever. Right. And unpack that a little bit for yeah. us, because once we understand what that is, I think it kind of dispels a lot of these ideas we have of sure. Satan being this terrifying creep. Right. Because for me, if I think of S- Satan being a terrifying creep, yeah. it would want to turn me and turn my eyes more toward God, who is the light. Right. And so just unpack that Satan trying to blind us from Christ and tactics and things like that. Yeah, I think um, the, the the picture we have of Satan, I'd say that the two, and they're related, the two most distinct profiles is first, what you just said, Second uh, Corinthians 4, mm-hmm. uh, particularly verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, verse 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God and the gospel in the face of Christ. I mean, that is just clear. And Hollywood doesn't talk about that at all. Yeah. So here's one of the clearest statements from the Apostle Paul, um, who himself knew what it was to be uh, in battle with spiritual forces. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 6 is you know, his famous section on spiritual warfare. He knew full well, and when he describes Satan's mission there in that succinct way, it's to keep us from seeing the light of the glory of God in the gospel. So, obviously, I think Satan is extremely content with a person that does not believe in his existence. Yeah. I think he's as happy as a lark. Yeah. I don't even know what a, why a lark is happy, but <laughs> that's what we're a clam, whatever's happy that's is. That's right. As happy as Pharrell, uh, you know, that um, I think he is incredibly happy if, um, you know, the good, hardworking, loving husband, suburban father, Republican voter is um, doesn't believe in Satan um, so long as he doesn't put his trust in Christ. Right. I think that Satan does not need to get that guy scared. Yep. I don't think he needs to give him any sense that I'm more powerful than you. Uh, I don't think he needs to creep the guy out at night and keep him up in his nightmares. I think he's very content. Second Corinthians says that that is, his, in my view, his chief aim. I think the thing closely related to it, uh, Nathan, would be in a passage like Revelation, uh, I believe is 12, where uh, he is described as the accuser yeah. of the brothers, so I, I see those going close at hand. If he can, if he can blind, well, let me reverse that. If he can accuse us of sin, mm-hmm. and then compound that problem of guilt and shame and paralysis by blocking and obscuring our view of Christ, yeah, that's a pretty good, yeah good game he's got going and he's done it well for millennia so uh that's a different view i i, I give the example in the book that if you take the picture of the prosecuting attorney mm-hmm. all respect to any lawyers listening in um yeah i mean you picture the guy in a nice suit yeah he's got uh, perfectly straight white teeth he's got a briefcase he smiles he's just got a job to do right and that is to basically furnish the evidence of your guilt yeah and your shame before the court and basically show why you should be forever consigned to punishment. Yeah. Um, that is the portrait I see in scripture. 
and that uh, has nothing to do with pitchforks mm-hmm. and red satin jumpsuits or right. scales. Uh, and I think that to the degree we can understand him in that role, then overlay the work of Christ and what he's done. Yeah. So you look at First John 2, where Jesus is called our righteous advocate. Yeah. Really the equivalent of a defense attorney. Yeah. You know, he enters that courtroom, of course, and uh, basically rips that list of accusations yeah. and says it's all been paid for. Yeah. Then the the way the Christian understands his relationship to Satan is now – because I think what a lot of people do is they just think, uh, well, God's more powerful than Satan. So, yes, yeah, Satan's scary and, right. and hellish right. and nasty, but right. God's not, and I'll get some comfort from that. Right. I just think there's so much rich, more specific, biblically informed comfort and yeah. joy to offer yeah. people when we consider the portrait that's painted of him. And that's right. what I try to go into in the book. Yeah, no, it is so helpful because, again, uh, our I think as Christians or, or when we come to Christ, especially in this day and age of the media and everything that we see, you tend to almost think about this battle of good and evil. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the things that comes to your mind, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You know, You've got good almost squeaking out at the end. Yeah, it wins, but it's like, ooh, just yeah. barely. Which that was is a I- close one. Which is ironic because um, if you actually read the whole depth and breadth of uh, of Tolkien's series, mm-hmm. there's actually a very overarching uh, power, God, mm-hmm. who's in control of everything. Yeah, you know, I mean, and 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 I guess like from our view and perspective, it's like. Ooh, we just squeak that one out. Yeah. When really, no, somebody's been in control of it and orchestrating the events the whole time. Yes. Um, again, Star Wars. It's like you've got the light side and the dark side, yeah. and they're balanced. And but this one just barely tips the scales. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the one of the references that you use was looking at Job, and and we see very clearly before Satan could do anything to Job. He had to first ask God for permission. Of course. And and I think that's one of those things that as believers we need to understand and realize is that can Satan attack us? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. But he has to get permission to do it first. Yes. Um, and you use two great uh, analogies um, in the book. One of them is describing Satan as a dog on a leash. Mm-hmm. And and that's exactly what it is he is God's dog yeah. on a leash, and the only time that he is able to go is when God allows it. Yeah. Um, and this doesn't. Um, I think sometimes we feel like, oh well, you know that that kind of extended and happened at Calvary. Mm-hmm. Well, no, this has been for all eternity. Of course, yeah. Since the beginning of time, God has always had Satan under control, mm-hmm. and it's not that. You know, God's power just slightly over squeaks and overpowers Satan is mm-hmm. that he's so much infinitely more powerful that Satan must go and ask permission to do anything. Yes. Um, and the second is um, when you describe what is what is Satan's role, what is Satan's purpose? Right. And this is actually one of my favorite um, descriptions because it, as a guy, I remember so clearly walking into a jewelry store. And deciding what diamond I was going to pick out for joy when I proposed. Yeah. Um, and and you said you know the the point of Satan is um, the back, the black drop cloth mm-hmm. 
showing forth Christ as the ultimate diamond and jewel. Right. And right. and every guy who goes in to get a wedding ring or a, an engagement band can can relate to that because whenever you walk into the store, you see all those black drop cloths, but but that's not what you notice. Yeah. What what you notice and what you're focusing on and what your eye is drawn to is that diamond that is just shining and sparkling underneath all those lights. Yeah. And that's exactly what Satan is. Yeah. He's he's a black drop cloth. And what your eye gets drawn to is the beauty and preciousness that is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. You said that better than I think I wrote it, honestly. And <laughs> for a second, it took me a while to remember, you know, and I th- yes, yes. Well, I, I think that too, um, I, I base that on John, uh, 10, 10, where mm-hmm. Jesus says, you know, the thief comes to steal and to kill and yeah. destroy. Most commentators, A.W. Pink was one, not all. Some think he's making a general point. I, I think the fact that he's, uh, specific says the thief, the definite article, we we can debate that he is uh, ultimately pointing to the true embodiment of the thief as right. opposed to thieves which is satan himself and the contrast is interesting he uses it in unashamedly yeah. to contrast his his own personhood with that of satan uh so the thief comes to steal kill and destroy i come that they might have life and have it more abundantly and that you know i i will try to um do that with my kids when satan comes up is to talk about all right yeah let's let's talk about him Mm -hmm. and we'll say what what is he trying to do and we'll kind of have a kid's version of the same Mm -hmm. conversation you and i are having now nathan and then i say okay what is jesus doing yeah and it's not what jesus to your point is trying to do right it's what he's done yeah satan is trying to do things to the degree that he accomplishes them we ultimately as you just pointed He's ultimately serving God's sovereign purposes yeah. and can do no more than that. But um, look what Jesus has done. Yeah. Look what he promises. Look at his kingdom. And you're right. I think um, Lewis deals with that, too, when he talks about the devil in the opening pages of the screw tape letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Says one of the great errors we can make is to consider them equals, uh, but one is good and one is bad. Right. That's dualism. Right. That is more Lucas-like, the force. Yep. Um, a little more Eastern in its orientation when, of course, I mean, it's the difference between the Empire State Building and a, and a, and a toddler's, uh, you know, uh, play toy. Right. And that's not even, uh, uh, you know, a proper difference. Right. There is no equal contest here. Right. And um, Luther is the one uh, that it's often attributed to the devil as God's devil. Although I've searched in vain for that exact quote. Right. Read an article, I think it was by Michael Horton or somebody associated with him years ago, that suggests that's a paraphrase okay. of Luther's basic theology, right. which might be more accurate, but it's just too good of a quote. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> yeah, the devil is God's devil. So we could give that to somebody. How about we give that to Benny Hinn? That's right. <laughs> nah, maybe maybe not him. Um, but, you know, it's Shut a... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll cover that one another time when we get Calvinist Batman back on. Um, but, yes, this, this notion of Satan, uh, Nathan, and his... Identity and his role, I think, is important because the more we can understand it, the more we truly can appreciate what the gospel has done yeah. to counter it. I think the less we understand Satan, the less, frankly, we can. It, right. it, it's really the same. Why we need to understand sin? Yeah. What yeah. is sin? It really, uh, you know, my five-year-old or six-year-old uh, now would basically describe it as doing something bad. That's a great definition for a six-year-old. Right. Um, that's to me an insufficient definition for a 36 year old right. that should be able to say a little bit more about sin's nature. Sure. Um, 
the way it indwells, the way it's subtle, it's insidious, it attacks. Yeah. Um, it can coexist uh, while you're doing something good. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, as we grow, we know more about it. I think it's the same thing. We want to get past simplistic understandings of Satan so that we can fully appreciate what Christ has done. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and actually, uh, we had talked about possibly going a little uh, shorter on this one, but we're, there's so much to unpack in this book, and there's a couple things I want to touch on before we um, wrap up. The first is um, uh, what you said in the book about um, the worry, and, and Christ talks about this in Mark. It's not what goes into a person that makes them unholy, but it's what comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that has um, always stuck with me since I heard you say that because I had never thought about it in terms like that before. Just in in, in looking at myself, in being more worried about what I do in mm-hmm. my sin nature as opposed to what Satan can do in tempting me. Mm-hmm. Um, and just unpack that a little bit for us because I feel like sometimes – even as adults, we want to kind of blame Satan for yeah. our, our mistake. Well, the devil made me do it. Yeah. Um, and, and really, to me, that has become one of my prayers and battle cries to God is, is God, save me from myself. Yeah, yeah. Forget, you know, forget Satan and, and his attacks and his demons. And, and again, that's not to minimize the involvement of of demons and Satan and their impact in my life. To me, I just don't think that I I warrant their attention because yeah. I know how messed up I am without it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so just unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, Nathan, I think uh, one of the things you just said um, nails it, that you know how messed up you are yeah. w- without them. And I think that's that's critical. In fact, you know, if you think of the the sort of a threefold threat mm-hmm. to the believer is often, you know, couched as the world, the flesh, and the devil. You find all three of those mentioned in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah. Uh, be a good passage to see where those three foes were. If you really think about it, not that the, the text invites us to rank them, mm-hmm. so with a very muted attempt to sure. do that without trying to make it into gospel or anything, I think it's not a stretch to sort of stretch your imagination a bit and and say, okay, um, that was a bad sentence. It's not a stretch <laughs> to stretch your imagination. What the? Anyway, whatever I'm trying to say, it's late. Uh, to uh, push your imagination a sure. little bit and say, um, okay, which of those three is the most omnipresent threat? Yeah. It isn't Satan. Yeah. Satan is not omnipresent. He is a fallen angel. Uh, he is uh, not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Yes, he has minions that do his bidding. You get into stuff here. I'll throw this out. I personally mm-hmm. believe, and I can't press this, that it's very likely Satan does not know who I am yeah. at all. Um, I, I can't prove that. Right. It's a suspicion that I have because right. I don't believe he's omniscient. Right. And I would not be surprised if he's more aware of uh, very, very godly people that are perhaps doing incredible things in the 1040 window sure. in some of the most unreached people groups in the world than yeah. he is little old me here. Uh, now, he has minions. He has uh, you know those that do his bidding, demonic yeah. forces. and um, Yeah, one of those, I don't know, might be assigned to me or you. Right. And who, who knows how all that works? You know, That's just all, all conjecture. But 
Uh, then I think of the world, yeah. which in scripture is a world system. Yeah. It's almost the air that we, we breathe. That's, um, that's more, <laughs> uh, ubiquitous, I think is the formal term. Mm-hmm. It's more ever present. Right. It's harder to get away from. Yeah. But you can technically get away from Satan, quote unquote. Right. You can technically at times get away from that world system. I think yeah. of a retreat. Sure. Maybe an intimate group of friends and you're committed to pray, et cetera. Sure. You cannot get away from the flesh. Yeah. It's with you wherever you go. That's what Paul said. It's that evil is always at my elbow. Romans yeah. 7, uh, Galatians 5, uh, 17. Um, you know, the, the, the flesh and uh, the spirit are at war with, with one another. Um, so I do think it's very important that we understand Satan's role is, I think, to uh, exacerbate yeah. uh, the work of the world and the flesh that's already right. going on right. around us all the time. Uh, which makes us a little more self-introspective. And it's not just, oh, the devil got uh, See, the right. devil got to him. Right. He committed adultery. That old devil got to him. The devil might not have been anywhere near in right. sight. <laughs> but the flesh was there. Right. The world was there. So um, I cannot, I mean, I'll just give a plug. He doesn't know, but it's not a popular book like it was, but Chris Lungard is the enemy within. Okay. What a labor of love that was for the church, Nathan. I wish that book was more popular it's basically John Owen popularized. Mm-hmm. John Owen is awesome, but John Owen is ridiculously hard to read. Right. I mean, you've got to read words like aversation. Right. I don't know what that means, right. and I've used it as an illustration. <laughs> um, but uh, his book is a uh, popularized version of that. And his second book was good, too, Through the Looking Glass. But there's something about that first book, The Enemy Within. Anybody listening to this, I hope you can just check it out. Yeah. Uh, he deals with the flesh. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's a far more important subject for the Christian to get down first yeah. than the world. And then I would say the devil. Yeah. I mean, I do think we need to understand who are, who's stacked up against us, yeah. but maybe in that order. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I think, um, I, I think we do need to have a more, uh, balanced approach sometimes because I think sometimes we can forget that the devil is at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I, I think to add to that C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters, is great a book. is a great way because Incredible I think book. I think what it does is it it does show uh, behind the veil. Yeah, you know I, I think he does a masterful job of looking behind the veil and showing some of those inner workings and even because so many times he said you know he taught as Screwtape is um, listening to. It's his uncle Wormwood, right? Well, Screw, uh, Screwtape, Screwtape is the uncle. uncle. Wormwood's yeah, the nephew. Wormwood's the yeah. nephew. Um, you know, saying if you can just leave him on his own to his own devices, sure. go ahead and do it. Yeah. Um, because I think Lewis understood that concept yeah. of of me, myself, and I. Oh yeah. Um, but here's what you do if you can't. Yeah. Um, here's what happens if it needs a little extra push. Absolutely. A extra shove. Oh, and the brilliance of that book, the subtlety, the insidious yeah. nature, even how he says the church at times can be your ally. Yeah. And uh, he says, "No, I don't mean the church in its invisible, glorious right. sense, you know. But I mean it's the, the church, people the in people. the church." And he talks about the person with the oily face next yeah. to him, singing in a voice he can't stand, having habits. I mean, just brilliant observations. I'm glad you brought that point up, Nathan, because I do want to say I know we have probably a large number of reformed listeners. Yeah, we have a reformed flavor here that we we don't deny in any sense. Um, happily. But I do think one of the other reasons I did write that book uh, is I feel there's been 
the pendulum swung maybe too far, mm-hmm. um, and I don't want to contradict what I just said. Uh, the flesh, I think, should get the most press right. and the world. But in some reform circles, it's almost like the devil is – it's like people are embarrassed to talk about it. Yeah. Well, that's – Medieval, so, no, the, the devil is right. Yeah, you know, I think anybody <laughs> that reads the Bible knows that he's real. Right. The Puritans, in my opinion, were one of the last really reformed bastions to unashamedly talk about the devil. Right. Uh, who wrote? Uh, I think it was uh, Brooks that wrote Precious Remedies uh, for Satan's Devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Gurnall's the, the the Christian in Complete Armor. Mm-hmm. It's all about spiritual warfare. There are several Puritan volumes. On Satan, less so in the reformed um, uh, body of literature in the coming uh, centuries from that time sure. of the Puritans. Not sure what that is, yeah. But I think uh, reformed people need to maybe up their game. Right. That's my opinion a little bit on the on the demonic. Yeah. No, and that and that's great. And you mentioned um, spiritual warfare, spiritual mm-hmm. battle. Um, you did not, and intentionally so, did not talk about the armor of God. Yeah. Um, in, in your reasoning, uh, you had two reasonings in there. Um, one of them I thought was hysterical, uh, because you felt that there were others who were probably more qualified to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, your second one though, uh, was, was interesting. I thought better explained because you actually don't, you didn't want to take apart the armor of God as some people do and analyze it because you believe that when Paul is talking about the armor, he's actually referring to, uh, is it Isaiah? Yeah. Um, go ahead and talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that the um, armor of God, and I, I think I'm on, in a minority view on this. I'm very, very careful. Right. Welcome criticisms. Um, and I'm even going to cheat a little bit, Nathan, and look at the book <laughs> uh, since it has been so long. Yeah. That um, I've not found too many people address this. Normally, the armor of God is treated in a way where we sort of go through each piece. Yes. Okay, this is the sword of the spirit. Uh, this is the uh, the shield of faith, etc. Um, in uh, uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 59, we have this phrase, Justice is turned back, righteousness stands afar off, uh, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter, truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And here it is. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Now, that's Isaiah 59, 14 through 16, the first part of verse 16. There is a um, a description to me of God looking basically for justice, yeah. and he's not finding it. Yeah. There's no one fighting evil. There's no one fighting injustice. And interestingly enough, in verse 59, it says, Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Uh, and if you read on into verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Yeah. These are clearly the images Paul's using in Ephesians 6. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that in their original context, it's being used to describe God putting on the armor. Yeah, He's looking for a warrior. There is none. So he fights for us. Yeah, He fights on our behalf. So I have really wondered if Ephesians 6 is sometimes unnecessarily broken down sure. into its component parts. When is it a, a more Isaiah-like way of Paul, in essence, saying to put on Christ, yeah. who is our warrior? Yeah. Um, 
uh, I've de- since I've written this, I've talked to several friends, pastors, etc. Mm-hmm. Think I might be overpressing that. Maybe I am, but I'll tell you what. Whenever I've taken somebody to that passage, it's always eye opening. They yeah. most people tell me oh, I've never seen that before. I've yeah. never heard anybody make that connection. Uh, the only one that I've ever heard do it is Brian Chapel, and I I do include that in his book or, or, or an excerpt from his book. Um, which let me see, do I put the reference on what that is? Uh, yeah, Holiness by Grace, two thousand and one Crossway. But listen to what Chapel says. He says, "I can imagine looking out through the faceplate of the helmet of salvation that God has given me, coming toward me. I see." the assaulting forces of the evil one with all his dominions, powers, and authorities. Simply seeing the approaching cloud of darkness from this mighty enemy, I fear that I cannot stand. The ground shakes and my knees begin to buckle. Then the Apostle Paul, like a general on the field of battle, calls out, Steady now, do not retreat, take your stand, be strong in the power of his might. Forget the strength you thought you could provide. Remember the might of the armor God has given you. Resurrection power has given you a breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, Feet that are shod with the readiness that comes from being at peace with the sovereign of the universe. Beyond all of these defenses, he has given you an ultimate weapon, the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. Now confident of the strength and integrity of the armor that you have been given, stand firm. Yeah. Um, what he does there, I mean, he mentions the specific components, but it's more that this is the Lord's armor, and I view it like I'm inside of it there with him. Right. As opposed to me... Uh, have I really buffed out my shield? Right, right. Have I, you know, Captain America in my shield enough? Yeah. Um, have I, uh, is my faith strong yes, enough? There's yeah. a way we can make the armor of God less about God's strength and more about our own resolve. Right. And um, I think that's why the Isaiah passage is so informative. Yeah. No, and I agree. And I think when you actually look and break down the pieces of the armor, um, it's you've got to almost look at it in terms of the way people normally do and say, you know, okay, the breastplate of righteousness, even as a Christian, how righteous am I really? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, outside of Christ, I've got nothing. Right. I've got nothing. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the sword of the spirit, you yeah. know, uh, the word of, I mean, which is the word of God. It's yeah. like, that's not mine. Right. You know, I mean, that that that's God's holy word yeah. breathed down. I mean, you know, and you you start breaking up the pieces of the armor, and you look at it, and that's why I really appreciated that because I think it does it, it does exemplify Christ, and it takes it off of me. And well, where's where's my focus? You know, am I focusing on being truthful today? Am I focusing on being righteous today? Yeah. No, I, I'm focusing on Christ, who is all those things and the yeah. fulfillment of all those things. Um, so, no, I, I I really appreciated it no, for you, um, for that reason. Um, and then um, we are. Uh, actually running a wow, little over time. I know. I do want to read this because to me, um, and, and I think you would agree, Greg, this is the this is what inspired you to start that series was oh, yeah. this that hymn, hymn by Johann Frank. And um, Satan, I defy you. Death, I now decry you. Fear, I bid you cease. World, you cannot harm me, nor your threats alarm me. While I sing of peace, God's great power guards me every hour. Earth and all its depths adore him, silent bow before him. Hence all earthly treasure, Jesus is my pleasure, Jesus is my choice, hence all empty glory. What to me your story, told with tempting voice, pain or loss or shame or cross, shall not from my Savior move me, since he chose to love me. 
Hence all fears and sadness, for the Lord of gladness, Jesus enters in. Those who love the Father through the storms may gather, still have peace within. For whatever my, I must bear, still you, you lie, still you lies purest pleasure, Jesus' priceless treasure. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the wrong one. Um, oh, no, that was the beginning of it, yeah. Satan, I defy you. Yeah. Um, and that was just um, so great because I was actually, um, it was interesting as I was looking at the title of this book, I thought that would have been a great title for the book, Satan, I Defy Thee. Well, yeah, you know, that was the title. That was. That was. The title was Satan, I Defy the Discovery House. Uh, been a wonderful publisher. I mean, they, they did those first two books. Um, I can't remember what their rationale was, but I, one thing I learned, you really have no, as a nobody writer. <laughs> right. I'm sure John Piper can name his book whatever he wants. Right. Um, Snuffle up a guest ride. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Exactly. <laughs> Twenty dollars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Untie my bow tie. Who stole my Honda? Uh, that might be a name of a book. But in terms of uh, no name authors with smaller churches, you know, you, you're they publish it. You're sort of at the mercy. They thought I think it was a little too old fashioned, mm-hmm. um, Puritan like, and I said okay, I, I, I understand sure. that. So uh, they chose living free in enemy territory which i like that yeah i like that theme yep. i like that title but yeah that hymn actually i came across that hymn in writing the first book mm-hmm. and that line just grabbed me satan yeah. i defy thee you know death i now decry thee and the confidence it's such a bold hymn but it's so rooted in the lord yeah in christ's yeah. strength not not my resolve right. to be a good christian right but trusting that christ is strong enough powerful enough Right. To be my strong tower. And you even talk about that in the book, that really the only way we can do that, if you look at the book of Jude, um, we get this small section that's taken um, out of one of the, um, is it uh, the book of Enoch? Yes. Um, This small section taken out of the book of Enoch where um, we're told that um, there's this dispute between Satan and Michael over the um, The body body of of Moses. Moses. Wow, yeah. Um, And... Michael just simply says, the Lord rebuke you. Yes. He doesn't try to take him on. Mm. He doesn't try to battle him. He says, the Lord, I rebuke you. And so the only way that we can rebuke Satan, the only way we can defy Satan is if it's the Lord and not us. Because if we look at what these demons can do, what Satan can do, we'd be wetting ourselves. Oh, my goodness. You know? And then some. (laughs) Yeah. And the fact Um, that Michael... Powerful angel, yeah. the archangel says that. A lot of commentators think, and I think there might be a case there, that you're looking at the <clears throat> the present archangel and the former and the right. former right. archangel, possibly. Right. Um, I, I, you know, we can't necessarily press that, but it's an interesting thought. Either way, you know, I've often mentioned one angel kills 186,000 right. soldiers in one night. That's some pretty significant yeah. power. Uh, and here you've got this powerful celestial being. Yeah who's not just kind of digging down into his own toughness. Right. But even then saying, the Lord rebuke you. Yeah. You know, he's not relying on his own strength. And if a mighty angel isn't, uh, I'm not feeling so strong myself. Right. Yeah. No, and, and that's great. And thank you so much, um, Greg, for for writing this. Because like you said, I, I do think there's a lot of misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think you did a great job of maybe, you know, opening up and, and showing people a different side of what we typically think um, in regard to Satan. Yeah. Um, so we are uh, out of time. 
we'll go ahead and wrap up now. Greg, we just rocked the Casper. Rocked it. These guns are 11.